so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Children are captivated by the extraordinary, the dazzling, and the spectacular, and the gospel is the most wondrous of all. At our national conference, Andrew Peterson shares how we can feed the imagination and wonder of our children with the beauty of the gospel. Let's listen now. Um, And I also just wanted to point out that I'm very grateful to be here, um, uh, evidenced by the fact that because this is an ERLC thing that I tucked in my shirt. Uh, so I'm feeling, feeling pretty awesome right now. So I'm going to jump right into it because, uh, there's a lot of ground that I kind of want to cover. Um, I am a pastor's kid from Florida. Uh, I'm an author and a songwriter. My oldest son, um, we have three kids. My oldest son just started college this week. So I may start crying in the middle of this talk. Um, and my, my, his name's Aiden. He's 18. He's a freshman at Lipscomb University. My next son is Asher, who is 17. He's a senior in high school. And my daughter, Sky is almost 15. She's a freshman. Uh, and so I have kind of made it through the brush with the first kid in some sense. I feel like we're just getting started in other ways. But, uh, but I, w- I want to talk to you a little bit about my story. Um, that's the best way that I know how to do this is to tell you my story and trust that uh, something about my story will, will be helpful. Uh, my grandmother asked me when I was a kid what kind of books I like to read. Fantasy novels, I said. I probably had a Dragonlance book hidden in my backpack next to the Walkman with the Tesla tape, the Transworld Skateboarding Magazine, and the Trapper Keeper with a Camaro on the front. Well, isn't that sort of thing for girls, Granny asked. She tilted her head back to better see me through her glasses. What do you mean? There's nothing girly about them. Hmm. She went back to her game of solitaire while I tried to tone down my defensiveness. Granny, I'm serious. Lots of my friends read them, and I don't know a single girl who does. Well, I guess times have changed, she said with a sad little shake of her head. We went back and forth for a few minutes before I realized that when I said fantasy, she thought I meant romance. The steamy kind, you know, the paperbacks with the scarlet covers and the flowing scripts, always with a ravished woman wrapped in the arms of a blonde dude with breeches and riding boots. And no shirt, muscles so big he could snap her in half, and from the way she's looking at him, it seems she wouldn't mind so much if he did. His name is probably Dirk. No wonder my grandmother looked worried. No, Granny, I said with relief. Fantasy novels, swords and dragons and stuff. The less romance, the better. That wasn't strictly true because in Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Tannis Half-Elven and Elf Prince Laura Lanthalassa, I'm not kidding, had a thing going, but they had to keep it quiet because her people mistrusted his half-humanness and it created all kinds of romantic tension. Plus, the War of the Lance interfered and everything, but mostly there were dragons <laughs> and dwarves and magic weapons and dungeons and taverns teeming with thieves and adventurers. I remember Christmas morning, 1987, when I tore the wrapping paper off of several Dragonlance books. 
books that I swore to my dad weren't the same as Dungeons and Dragons games, though it turned out they were. (laughs) Almost exactly, in fact, but in book form. Even more startling, I didn't turn into a devil-worshipping delinquent, nor did the books spontaneously combust on the holy ground of the church parsonage. (laughs) To the contrary, I'm in my 40s now, and I still remember the warm tingle in my fingers when I first held those pulp paperbacks. I can still smell them. If I close my eyes, I can see the cover painting by a guy named Larry Elmore. It featured the aforementioned Tannis Half-Elven, Caramon the Warrior, Goldmoon the Barbarian Princess, Flint the Dwarf, and Tasselhoff the Kinder standing in an autumnal veil with a red dragon coiled behind them. The whole gang was looking at the camera, so to speak, as if waiting for me to step into the book and join them. Now it all seems so cliche, but at the time I didn't know and I didn't care. Each chapter of those books opened with an illustration of something which, to an eighth-grade boy, was awesome. I filled notebooks with drawings of those dragons, talismans, old stone doorways, and walking lizards called draconians, which I admit I completely got the idea for the fangs of Dang from, if you've read my books. Uh, I thought about those stories in class, and I read them after I failed tests, and talked about them with my brother and our nerdy friends while we built skateboard ramps in the garage. The books lifted me straight out of the mossy ponds of North Florida and plopped me down in a magical world just as surely as Lucy stepped through the wardrobe and found herself in Narnia. My young mind crackled with longing, though I wouldn't have known to call it that. I merely said to myself, man, that's so cool, in an awestruck whisper. (laughs) Not long after that, at my older brother's behest, I read David Eddings' The Belgariad, a five-book epic fantasy about a kid named Garion who eventually learns to speak a secret spy language with tiny movements of his fingers. If that weren't cool enough, he also saves the world by recovering an orb. I wonder how many times an imaginary world has been saved by the recovery of an orb. (laughs) I love these books almost as much as I love the Dragonlance Chronicles, partly because it seemed like I read the whole thing in about five minutes. I don't know how David Eddings did it, but you can burn through those books. Around the same time, I read Stephen King's It and The Talisman, both of which ought to be considered fantasy novels and neither of which are as good as I remember them. My brother also got me hooked on the David Gerald uh, sci-fi books, uh, The War Against the Couture. The Couture books raised the bar and lowered it at the same time. Gerald is, as they said in my neck of the woods, one smart dude. He used the Couture books not just to tell a story with the usual spaceships, but also to philosophize, which is one of the best things about science fiction. The books explore everything from war tactics to ethics to religion to sexuality. But to my relief, there were also plenty of guns and zombies and wormy critters that wanted to eat the world. Even so, there were moments of bliss when I closed my door at night, switched on the reading light, cracked open the paperback of A Rage for Revenge, and could almost hear the hiss of the pressurization system kicking on as I stepped onto the space transport. Gone were the humid bedsheets and the oscillating fan and the mossy trees of Florida. Gone was my nascent fear that I would be miserable for the rest of my life. Gone were my failures. I was saving the world, baby, and I might not make it back alive. (laughs) And then I'd wake up on the ugly green couch in my bedroom to the sound of my preacher dad stomping through the house singing, Rise, shine, give God the glory, glory, in full preacher voice. It was time to embark on another day of school, another day of facing what felt like an enormous waste of time, except for those few minutes between failures when I could duck through the trap door of my book and emerge into a world of real beauty and real danger, which meant real heroism and the possibility of real purpose. I was hungry for it, maybe even starving. 
Every time we drove the 30 minutes to Gainesville, the nearest town with a mall, I headed straight for Walden Books. Remember Walden Books? When I got to Walden Books, I headed straight for the fantasy sci-fi section, which at the time boasted only a few shelves, always with a tantalizing fraction of that same tingle I felt on Christmas morning in 1987. I ran my fingers over the spines of all those paperbacks. Anne McCaffrey's The Dragon Riders of Pern, Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea Chronicles, Lloyd Alexander's Pride and Chronicles, an ever-increasing number of Dragonlance books. Now there are about 200. The D&D spinoff Forgotten Realms, which I never cared for, though the covers were awesome. Stephen R. Lawhead's Pendragon Cycle, Robert Jordan's The Eye of the World, Terry Brooks's The Sword of Shannara, and of course, towering above them all, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, a book I hadn't read, which caused my older brother no end of consternation. I'd seen the animated film 700 times, so I didn't think I needed to read it. Don't be angry. Tolkien, for me, came later. But hobbits aside, I stood at the aisle in Walden Books and yearned, I tell you. I was drawn to those book covers like a deer to a salt lick. And like a salt lick, they only made me thirstier. I couldn't get enough. In those days, I was restless without a book in my hands, without the hope of some new story around every turn to enliven my deadening senses. Unlike most of my friends, I didn't want a truck or a job or a scholarship. I wanted a horse and a quest and a buried treasure. But there were no real quests anymore, not in my town. And so I had to make them up. And that led to a series of hijinks that I'll write about when I'm old and most of the witnesses are dead and the statute of limitations has run out. (laughs) But I left out something significant when I told you about my conversation with Granny Peterson. When she asked me what kind of books I like to read, the prevailing feeling I remember is bashfulness, a few inches shy of outright embarrassment. I was standing in her front room with my hand on the table where the grown-ups always played canasta, and I stared at the linoleum floor, wishing she hadn't asked me that question. Ask me about something else, I thought, anything else, skateboarding or girlfriends or grades or Jesus. Just leave my stories alone. My craving for those tales occupied a private part of my adolescence. They represented my loneliness, the only antidote for which was the seemingly impossible dream that life could be lived alongside trusty companions in defiance of great evil. I looked out her window and I saw crabgrass, old trucks, clouds of mosquitoes, and gravel roads, a rural sloth that drawled, here's your life, son, make do. But my book said, here's a sword, lad, get busy. That was for you, Sally. In case you're listening. (laughs) A persistent fear sizzled in my heart, a fear that there existed no real adventure other than the one on the page, and that I was doomed never to know it. Doomed to a life of failure. There's that word again. I felt called to adventure, but I saw no way to get there. So instead, I read about adventures and kept that dream alive by keeping it to myself. How do you explain that to your grandma? How, for that matter, do you explain it to anyone? That's why whenever I meet someone who grew up devouring those kinds of stories, I have a hunch that I know something about them, something secret. I think you were hungry too, weren't you? You thought you were alone just like I did. You had something to escape from, and these stories were a way out. You may have only said to yourself, man, that's so cool, but I think I know what you really meant. Don't be afraid. Your secret is safe with me. But sooner or later, I had to abandon the salt lick. I needed water. Sometime between my adolescence and my diploma, I discovered music. And music was the horse that bore me safely out of town. Music was the call to adventure, however self-serving and reckless that adventure may have been. 
It was also the doorway through which the object of my quest entered my heart. In the summer of 1993, I was a foundering young man chaperoning at a youth, youth conference called CIY, Christ in Youth, when one morning on a hillside by the chapel, I watched the sun rise on the green mountains. They were softer and more majestic than any landscape I had imagined existing in Crin or Prydain or Narnia or Middle Earth. They were real mountains. My CD Walkman was on repeat, and again and again I heard Rich Mullins sing the line, I see the morning moving over the hills. I can see the shadows on the western side. And all those illusions that I had, they just vanish in your light. The sun was rising on me, pushing the shadows of my failure and fear farther away until the whole world was bright and peaceful as only an Appalachian dawn can be when you're 19 and weeping with the surety of true forgiveness and true love. What I was looking for all along had found me instead. Not once did I suspect in all my sketching and reading and aching to enter the stories I read that Jesus was calling to me through them. Jesus was mostly an idea. There was church, the life that I was supposed to long for, and then there was the life that I actually longed for. You see, I was the victim of imaginational segregation. On one hand, there was my compulsion to be a Christian, a cultural and familial paradigm that I happily ascribed to and had little reason to resist. And on the other hand, I nurtured a mostly secret affection for what were more or less fairy tales. Looking back, the same was true of my obsession with comic books and films and music. In each of those art forms, I encountered a world that seemed more vivid than the one that I was in. But outside my window was this sleepy southern town, a place I considered unworthy of much consideration. While inside my mind was darkness and beauty, good and evil, music that spoke a language that I felt born to speak. And all of it seemed more beautiful than the world that I was in. And I wanted to enter that beauty. So I decided the only way to engage it, apart from my imagination, was to create it. I could draw or play the piano or write. If I could make something beautiful, maybe I could forget for a few moments how drab I was, how useless I felt, how lonely was this dull and lifeless life I had been given. And that dull life included Christianity as I understood it. I was, of course, projecting my disappointment with myself onto everything else. Everything but the world in my mind, built out of song and story and that terrible secret longing. The grass was oh so much greener on the other side. The mountains were taller and the water was sweeter and the stories were better too. But things were different that morning on the hillside in East Tennessee. Life itself, the one that I was actually living, for once outshone the life that I had yearned for. This beautiful broken world, having hidden in plain sight my whole life, suddenly ambushed me. It had lain in wait for the perfect moment to spring, a moment comprised of many nuances, the perfect song at the perfect hour of the day, the contrition of my hungry heart, the intricate staging of each act of beauty that had led me to that dewy lawn, and the brooding spirit of God draped over the valley like a mist. Drink, the spirit told me, and thirst no more. I'm not saying this was my actual conversion, but it was a salient moment that perhaps marked the end of a season of struggle. When the shadows cast by my disappointment and self-hatred were banished by the light of the forgiveness, the acceptance, and the infinite affection of Christ, I could see the world around me for the miracle that it was. I could see myself as a miracle. Scripture teaches that when God looks at a Christian, he sees Christ's righteousness. In a similar way, the Christian is now free to see Christ in everything, even himself. I was gloriously alive, and I was at home in the palm of God's hand.
So I abandoned fantasy. I had no need for it, so I thought, because the world I was in pulsed with loveliness. I was wide awake to God's presence. I cried when I sang in church. That was a new one for me. The girl I dated was beautiful, and it was no problem for me, or less of a problem at least, to honor her and my God by resisting the usual teenage temptations. The Bible became fascinating for the first time since I had read Revelation at church camp to see how imminent was the apocalypse in order to gauge my remaining party time. (laughs) Now I read it because it felt alive. I read it to know the God that Rich Mullins seemed to know so well. And you know what? It worked. During the first few weeks of Bible college, the story of the Old Testament lit up my imagination with stories of battle, espionage, love triangles, deception, failure, heroism, and the promise of redemption. Mine was an imagination well prepared for the invasion of the gospel story. The soil had been fertilized in my youth with a hundred tales that had taken root and grown but had borne no fruit. Those old stories had withered and decayed and composted, readying the ground for the life-giving seeds that were coming. I feasted on the meat of the gospel for four years. I don't want to give the impression that I was a perfectly model, uh, obedient model student or that I rejoiced in writing papers on the problem of evil or the kings of Judah. In many ways, I was still the bonehead I always was. And yet, I no longer felt that awful lack of purpose, which is, I suppose, a lack of hope. Now there were songs to be written. There were concerts to play. I wanted to tell people this story that had changed me. And through the lens of all my newfound hope, the world and every person I met seemed to shimmer with God's presence. I read commentaries. I read every class syllabus. I read the Bible. I read papers. I was eating meat, 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 and more meat. And then at the beginning of my senior year, with a bit of leftover student loan money, burning a hole in the pocket of my chapel slacks, I accidentally bought the Chronicles of Narnia from the college bookstore. I was hunting for the semester's textbooks when I spotted all seven paperbacks in an attractive slipcase, the white one, you know, the little cube, much like the one that I grew up with. I stood in the aisle with an unwieldy stack of textbooks and three-ring binders under one arm, while with the other hand I experienced a familiar tingle in the tips of my fingers as I ran them over the books that contained the magic of Narnia. There was a sudden sensation of clarity in the room, as when someone's been fussing with the television antenna and the static resolves at once into a clean picture. I knew if I moved, I would lose the station. I remember the word that I heard that morning on the mountain, drink. So the books went home with me, and I showed them to Jamie, to whom I'd been married for about a year. For our future kids, I said, but that wasn't the whole truth. They were for me too. (laughs) I had read so much nonfiction in college that I was craving something light and non-required. Somehow during my last semester of school, even though I was doing a steady stream of concerts and I needed to complete an internship and 22 hours of credit to graduate, I managed to read C.S. Lewis's story of Aslan and Narnia for the first time since childhood. I read it all the way from the wardrobe to the last battle, which, by the way, uh, I actually wrote a footnote for you. I maintain that the books should be read in the order in which they were written and published, not chronological order. If you have questions, you can come find me after. (laughs) So I thought of it as a literary retreat, indulging some of my childhood reading tendencies to give my brain a rest from academia. But instead, I experienced something much deeper. The reintroduction of fairy tales to my redeemed imagination helped me to see the maker, his word, and the abounding human, but sometimes spirit-commandeered tales as interconnected. 
It was like holding the intricate crystal of scripture up to the light and seeing it lovely and complete. And then discovering on the sidewalk a spray of refracted colors. The colors aren't the scripture, nor are they the light behind it. Rather, they're an expression of the truth born of the light beyond, framed by the prism of revelation and given expression on solid ground. My final days in college were spent studying the books of Ezekiel and James in class, writing song lyrics in the margins of my syllabi, and reading, at last, The Lord of the Rings, that exquisite spray of refracted light. And now I come to the point. Tolkien's story bears many similarities to those that I read in high school, mostly because they were trying to imitate him, including the lure of escapism. In the same way the Dragonlance books had whisked me out of high school, Tolkien's books transported me out of college for a few precious minutes each day. But whether it was because of my own awakening to the beauty of life through the saving truth of the gospel, or because of Tolkien's own faith and attentiveness to the Holy Spirit while he was writing The Lord of the Rings, when his story ended the world around me held more possibility and not less. It was brighter, not duller. My eyes were clearer, not dimmer. Tolkien and Lewis, both in their own way, lifted me out of this world to show me a thundering beauty. And when I read the last sentence and came tumbling back to earth, I could still hear the peal. I hear it to this day. God allowed the stories to lift the veil on the imaginary world to show me the real world behind it, which ended up being in the end, the one that I was already in. The real world, at least in part, isn't out there somewhere, nor is it in my mind. It's right here under my feet. It's all around me. Tolkien and Lewis held the fabric of Narnia or Middle Earth in one hand and clutched ours in the other, making a bridge across which we could set out for perilous realms and yet return safely with some of the beauty that we found there. The ache we feel when we read about Frodo's voyage from the Grey Havens, the ache we feel when Lucy Here's the thump of solid wood at the back of the wardrobe is telling us that, yes, there is another world. It's a world so beautiful you can hardly see it through your tears. So let Christ dry your eyes and then look around you. The stories that awaken us are meant to awaken us not only to the reality to come, but to this world and its expectant glory. Too often we retreat into the pages of our longing only to return disconsolate to the kitchen or the classroom. We're escaping from and not to. But to the happy child who climbs a tree and imagines that it's a castle turret, the tree is no less lovely. She sees in the forest a universe of possibility and could climb there for days. She's as present to the castles in her dreams as the limbs from which she swings. A few years ago, I dug out a few of the fantasy novels I adored and found them mostly empty. Not only have my tastes changed, the quality of the writing left something to be desired, but most of the stories strike me as a way to pass the time rather than to enrich it. The accoutrements of fantasy and science fiction still hold their appeal to me. Dragons and quests and epic tales are appetizing seasonings, to be sure, but seasonings don't make a meal. I still occasionally read a story for the excitement of it, but a mere quickening of the pulse is a passing pleasure. My heart longs to beat stronger and steadier because the race is long. Sometimes my sustenance when it comes to the books I read comes from deeper wells, even if it means I have to work for it by reading classics or novels that take place not in Hogwarts, but in Iowa, which I have learned is no less magical. I have been enraptured by stories about moths and watermelon harvesting and bridge building and fascinating nonfiction about city planning and hurricanes and explorers of the Amazon. There's so much out there to read that I doubt I would ever again answer my grandmother's question with fantasy novels. If someone asked me today, the answer would be good books. 
The same is true of music. Good music. Is that a genre? That doesn't mean I don't have a soft spot for all those old stories. And when I meet someone who spent the 1980s with their nose in a paperback, I enjoy the conversation. I believe the Lord used those books to pique my desire for another world, to exercise the muscle of my imagination, if not of prose, and even to comfort a lonely kid. I'm sure God's doing the same thing for kids all over the country, even now. And I'm not ashamed to admit that when I go to Barnes & Noble, I still visit the fantasy section first. I still run my fingers along the spines and study the cover art. And you know what? I still feel that 1987 tingle. Sometimes I even read some of those books. I tell myself it's just for fun, but I'll tell you a secret. I'm on the hunt. Somewhere out there, there's another Tolkien. Somewhere out there, men and women with redeemed, integrated imaginations are sitting down to spin a tale that awakens. A tale that leaves the reader with a longing that hurts just enough to tell them they're truly alive. A tale whose fictional beauty begets beauty in the present world and heralds the world to come. Someone out there is building a bridge so we can slip across to Elfland and smuggle back some of its light into this present darkness. I'm always looking for that bridge. I suppose if you wanted to, you could call it a quest. So in closing, I think the trick to captivating your child's imagination with the beauty of the gospel is to show them that if the gospel matters at all, then it matters in every corner of the universe. From the moons of Jupiter to what we eat for breakfast to subatomic quarks, whatever the heck those are. In the words of David Dark, there isn't a secular molecule in the universe. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't exercise discernment. It does mean that Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. And that we ought to move through the world as though there is nothing he cannot use for his own ends, his own glory. Even our lack of discernment, as was the case with my high school self. If our children's imaginations are integrated, then hopefully they'll see the pervasiveness not just of the curse, but of the kingdom. Everywhere they look, they'll see pictures of the presence of God in their music, in their books and films, in their friendships, in their meals, in the seasons and trees and sunsets, even in themselves, no matter how nerdy or ashamed or uncool they think they are. There is a seat for them at the table in the kingdom of God. And he is telling that story first in scripture, but also in a million other ways every day. I think the enemy wants us to move through the world in fear, forgetting that because of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus, matter matters. It is all Christ's domain, and every sad thing is coming untrue. Recently, I was at a rabbit room conference in Nashville where we feasted, and we talked about art and music and faith. And at the closing session, one of the attendees reminded us that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the White Witch encountered a family of animals gathered around a table, eating and celebrating Aslan's return. The witch considered their feasting an act of war. So, draw up your battle lines. Sit down with your children and friends around a meal. Read a good book. Raise a toast to the king and the coming kingdom and fight back. There is a seat for us all at the table. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the ERLC podcast. You can find more resources about children and parenting at ERLC.com. And remember to join us next week for a discussion on a variety of topics with the ERLC and Nine Marks Ministries.